0: Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just wanna take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Hey, we're starting a new series today uh, through the book of Exodus. We're gonna be doing this for the duration of summer. And so uh, later this week we'll put out on social media uh, kind of the roadmap, map, if you will, for what we're going to be, uh, the general area that we're going to be uh, focusing on each week. That way you can study along with us and you can read. If you're looking for something to do uh, for your own personal Bible study, I highly encourage you to be reading through Exodus with us. Uh, if you have some extra time uh, and or maybe you want to set something aside, it would be a great way for God to bring us all together. I am praying that through this this won't just be a series of uh, teachings or talks or sermons. But this would actually be something that God actually works in us, both in our individual lives, but then corporately, quite honestly, because this is a corporate story that we're going to be looking at through the book of Exodus. And we're entitling it, Dwell, which basically means that God wants to dwell with His people, that we want to walk in His personal Presence and so uh, I'm going to ask you if you will, if you're going to read along with us. We'll provide some resources intermittently through the summer, as you can study along with us. Maybe even some. Uh, I'll, I'll key in some resources for you uh, for further reading and things like that. We always want to be growing uh, in our mind and our spirit uh, as we study God's word as individuals and together. And so uh, that'll be looking uh, look out for that stuff. It'll be coming out uh, intermittently throughout the summer in different times and things like that. Uh, and then what we're going to be doing today is kind of an introduction. Okay. So so we're going to be in uh, Exodus chapters 1 and 2. It's going to be a flyover of sorts. It's a little different than what we normally do, but this is try to set the course for where we're going today. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin with a photo. Um, I'm going to throw it up here for you. Does anybody know who this guy is? Any hands? Anybody? Who? Lowry. Lowry. That's Dan Reeves, right? Okay. Now, Now, I'm Dan Reeves, but that's Dan Reeves. When I was in college, uh, Dan Reeves was uh, actively coaching NFL football. Prior to that, he, was, uh, he played for the Dallas Cowboys, uh, and he, he coached like the Atlanta Falcons, the Denver Broncos, uh, New York Giants, I believe, uh, perhaps another one, I'm not quite sure, but I know at least those three. And uh, when I was in college, he was uh, I think at the time he was coaching the Denver Broncos, and um, what was interesting about that is I went through college and my nickname was Coach, not because I ever coached anything, but because of this guy right here. And so for four years, uh, you know how freshman year you go in and people don't quite remember your name and they kind of have a word association. They couldn't really remember it, but Dan Reeves, they could remember. And so I just became coach. And so I lived with that for four years. That's, that's who I was. Now we look a little bit different, hopefully. I'm getting closer to looking like him without the headset uh, at this point, but uh, we're different people, right? <laughs> But that wasn't the only time that I had somebody that had my name. As a matter of fact, let me just do a quick check. Is anybody named Dan in the room? Does anybody have the name Dan? We have one at 9 o'clock. No? Just me. All right. That's pretty interesting. Only one person in our church other than me is named Dan, apparently. Uh, But I had a few other people uh, in my life that had the same name as me. Not just the same first name, but the same uh, uh, first and last name. When Veronica and I first got married, we moved back to Jonesboro out of college. I was no longer coach. But I was still Dan Reeves. And they had this thing back then. This was in the mid to late 90s. Okay, Uh, They had this thing called a a phone book. Does anyone know what a phone book is? It's an actual list. I blew blew my kids' minds the other day. There was an actual list that they would just come and throw in your driveway of everybody's phone numbers. Uh, And you could go through there and you could find a number, you could find a name, an address, And a phone number for somebody. Uh, In a world of secrecy now, that's unbelievable to us that that actually used to take place. Uh, Well, um, it used to be when I was a kid, if you got your own line, your own phone line in your room, you know, one of those things that was attached to the wall. If you got one of those in in your room, you got your own phone number. That was a really big deal. And if you got your name in the phone book for some reason, that was a really big deal too, that everybody knew you had a phone that was uh, just right there attached to you. Well, when we got back to Jonesboro, they had this phone book. And if you looked in the phone book in the late 90s, you would have found there were four Dan Reeves. Okay, There was me, and my phone number was uh, 930-9346. For some reason, I can remember my numbers, addresses, and I can remember my locker combination from seventh grade. So I got weird thing with numbers that I remember. Um, so I can remember my number, but uh, some people didn't know which Dan Reeves they were calling. Uh, there were four in there, and the way to figure out which Dan Reeves you were talking to is you would just pick up and you would start calling through there and you'd say something like, hey, i say hello, and they would say, hey, is this Dan Reeves? And I, I would say, yes, it certainly is. And they said, well, I've got a project for your class that's going to be late, and I would have to stop them because I learned that there was actually an art professor at ASU named Dan Reeves. And I have to tell them, hey, no, you got the wrong Dan Reeves. That's not me. Uh, that's a different one. You need to go to the next one uh, or one of the other three in there and call them. That's not me. And so then I was like, OK, OK, OK. Wrong number. No problem. Everybody happens all the time. Uh, next phone number rings. Uh, pick it up. <clears throat> Hello. Is this is Dan Reeves. Yes, it is. Well, hey, when you drop off uh, your next delivery uh, uh, next week, here's what I need you to do. And I came to find out after some questioning, first of all, I'm not delivering anything to you, uh, that there was a Dan Reeves that worked for Pepsi, here in town, and uh, we shared a name, and so people would call me wanting Pepsi. I'd say, I don't have any Pepsi, I don't even drink Pepsi, I don't like Pepsi, Uh, no offense if you're a Pepsi drinker, I don't like it, Uh, those type of things, so I have a wrong number, okay, hang up, and then I'd get the third phone call, okay, inevitably. The third phone call wasn't like the first two where it was like a student and they were kind of like timid and like, hey, you know, or somebody that was asking for them to deliver a certain thing. This one was a little bit irate. They would say something like, is this Dan Reeves? And I was like, I'm not sure. I don't know if I want to be Dan Reeves right now. And then they would just go on a tirade. And this would not just happen once, this happened multiple times. And it, the dialogue was something like this Are you Dan Reeves? I was like, Well, that's my name. Well, listen, my daughter's not getting enough playing time. He was a coach, he was a softball coach. And so sometimes I would play along. I'd say something like, Well, your kid's not any good. No, I didn't actually do that. But, but they would mistake me because I had the same name for whoever. And depending on who they thought I was dictated their response to me. Some people were really timid because they thought I was their professor. Some people thought I was just somebody that was a delivery guy that would bring them stuff when they needed it, and they were going to tell me what they needed. And then somebody, some people just didn't like me. Uh, they were irate. They, were, uh, they had bad feelings toward me. And the reason that's important for us today is when we get into the book of Exodus... We're going to be talking about some really big questions that have everything to do with names and stories, because there's a lot of mistaken ideas about who God is. Matter of fact, you might be in here and you're wrestling today with who is God. Some of you might even call yourself Christians, but you're really wrestling with God because you thought he was one way, and at this point in your life, it seems like he's behaving in a different way, and you're confused, and you don't know how to respond to him. And so the question that we're going to be answering over the summer is we're going to be answering two primary questions, actually. The first one is, who is God? He's got a tattoo across his face. And the, third, the second question is, what is God like? Who is God and what is God like? Now, who is God is kind of a name question. It's kind of like me. Like, is my name Dan Reeves? Yes, it is. Um, If you read uh, scripture and you begin in Genesis, you're going to get right out of the gate, in the beginning, God, right? Well, that Hebrew word is the word Elohim, and it's really not a personal name like Dan at all. It's actually a title. Uh, It's kind of like Mr., right, if you will, or Doctor, or something of that nature. Uh, It's a generalized name for God. It's kind of an all-encompassing name for God, Well, in the ancient world, much like today, there were a lot of different opinions about who this God was. And so the only way to really know who he is is first, you have to answer the question, who is God? And the way you do that is through his name. And one of the things that Exodus is going to do for us is it's going to reveal not just the generalized name of God, but he's going to reveal the personal name of God, that this is actually the God that you can know and the God that knows you. Uh, you're going to see it in Scripture as you go, and it's going to be capitalized, the word Lord. Uh, and that's not really to draw out emphasis in the side of like you do all caps when you're texting. Uh, it's a, it's an, actually a special covenantal name of God. It's a personal name of God. Our transliteration of that is really hard to translate from actually from Hebrew over to English, but we would typically, and you may have heard this, uh, it's the, the name Yahweh. And so if you hear me say Yahweh uh, in place of Lord, that's why I'm doing that, because it's the personal name of God. Now that tells us something, but much like in the phone book, uh, where there's a lot of different opinions about who God is. I mean, even if we just surveyed the room today, there's probably, uh, you know, if we really got down to it, there might be a lot of different uh, delineations or distinguishing characteristics about how we would describe God. And so what we have to do then is, we have to answer the question, what is God like? And the only way to do that is through a story. And that's what Exodus is. Exodus is a story. And here's what I want to point out. You can jot this down. I was trying to think of a good way to do this, but just to kind of set the course for what we're going to realize about who this God is and be introduced to in Exodus chapters one and two. But here's two things I definitely want you to see about this God, uh, about who he is. What is he like? We're going to figure this out as we go and we're going to build it out. There's going to be a lot more to it than this. It's not exhaustive, but here's thing that this God is like, this Yahweh, the story is going to tell us. God is covenantally committed to rescue, redeem, and restore His creation to be in His personal presence, hence the name dwell. That's where we're going uh, for the duration of the summer. We believe that God is covenantally committed. That means that He has obligated Himself to us uh, by His own will, by His own choice, he wants to be in relationship with His creation, with His people. That was what God created us for. And so He has covenantally promised Himself to us. And we're going to find out that what that's going to take from God is He is going to have to be the prime mover. He's going to have to rescue us. He's going to have to redeem us. He's going to have to restore us along with all of creation. And He's going to there's going to be an interplay between a covenantal relationship between our failures... In His power to take our personal failures and weave them to a desired end. Now, there's a lot of questions about this. God does God uh, is God sovereign in the sense that He just ordains every little thing and He controls every little action and every decision that we make. Uh, some people would say yes. That in order for God to get to the end, He's got to control every little thing. Uh, along the way, because how can you control the end if you don't control every little thing? Some people would say, well, no, God has given us free will. He's given us choice. And so God doesn't control everything. You, you have a choice uh, in matters of life. Uh, and I think there's, there's definitely biblical evidence on both sides of those equations. And I think that what God wants to do is He wants to reconcile that. Because when people ask me, hey, do you believe this or that? I always say yes. Because what I believe is I believe that God is completely sovereign in the sense that He is able to take our free will and our choices and He is able to weave them to His desired end. Why do I believe that? Because I think that Scripture is going to reveal to us that God is infinitely intelligent and can therefore anticipate each possibility as perfectly as if it were a certainty. Now that's something for you to kind of digest this week. But think of it this way. Uh, they say that a novice chess player can think three moves in advance. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to play chess, but if you, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like this. I'm going to move my pawn, they're going to move their pawn, and then I'll move my bishop, or something of that nature. That's three moves. And, and if you're going to pick up uh, chess today, you're probably going to start right there. That's a novice move that you can kind of think three moves in advance. Uh, and that's because you have limited knowledge, limited perspective, limited ability. Uh, and so you just can't think that far in advance. And then to make matters worse, as humans, uh, when we're trying to do multiple things, like let's say we're multidimensional, like in the sense of like you're a, uh, you're a brother and a father and a husband and a boss or an employee and a friend, when you add up all those relationships, every time you do that, you begin to divide up your, uh, your mind. Uh, And so you fraction off your ability to actually be able to process all the things adequately. That's why multitasking they say, is actually not that effective, because you're dividing up your attention and your brain, and we are finite beings, right? Well, they say a world-class chess player actually can move uh, or can think 30 moves in advance. So if you think about that, that's like 3 across 10 deep or 10 across... Um, you know, a uh, three deep or something like that, 30 moves in advance. Now, when we think about that, that takes intelligence, that takes perspective, it takes uh, experience. And when we think about God, what we're going to understand about Him as we go through Exodus is that God is infinitely intelligent, and that means that not only is He able to play one chess game, He's able to play trillionth to the trillionth factor Of chess games throughout history and in our personal lives and he's able to take your free will and your choice and still treat every possibility as if it is a certainty so that he can actually overcome all the things that would work against your understanding of who he is and ultimately what his outcome is now if that's a little dense for you I think as we go through the summer, I think it'll begin to make more sense because this is the storyline is going to be revealed about who this God is. What is this God like? And so today we're going to kind of embark on this together, Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus 2.15. This is a chunk of scripture, okay? This is a huge chunk of scripture. And so we're going to do something a little bit different than what we normally do. Usually we'd kind of go word by word and all this stuff like that. This is a narrative. And so we're today going to read a sweeping narrative together. And then we're going to parachute in and make a few kind of uh, points. And so it's going to feel a little like going to school. But hopefully there's going to be some church. Like we always say, we go to school. Hopefully we'll get to church by the end of it so that God can actually transform us by his word. And how do we get to the answers to the questions, who is God and what God is like? Well, you've got to have a name. You've got to have a story. But it's interesting because Exodus 1 through chapter 2 actually presents to us a third question. And the third question that it's going to present to us that's going to get us going today is where is God? Now think about this for a second. Now think about when you're asking question about who is God and what is God is like. uh, Generally, it's in the moments when you're asking where is God? When does that happen in your life? It happens generally in seasons where you're waiting, where you're wondering, you know, how long is this gonna take? Uh, It happens in times when uh, you feel like uh, things are not going well and things are not growing and things are small. It happens oftentimes in our lives where we're facing opposition and, and, and there's hurdles, and there's, there's hindrances in front of us. These are times when it's like, where is God in all of this? We think about it, we think about this question in our failure, when we fail, and we come to terms with our own inability to do the right thing all the time, our imperfections. We ask ourselves, well, where's God in that? You see, all these things lead us toward the bigger questions of life. And if we'll allow ourselves to wrestle with the questions, sometimes people say, well, when you go to church, you're supposed to get answers, not questions. We actually want to provoke you to ask questions because we think that by asking the questions, what God can do is God can bring answers at a level deeper than some kind of like trite little saying that I could tell you just to kind of hang on your wall or tuck away in your pocket or something like that. God wants to deeply transform you. And none of us are transformed and none of us change until we ask deep Questions And the place that we ask the questions is when we ask the question, where is God? Now, why am I saying that? Because Exodus chapters 1 and 2, God is barely even mentioned. The way that the writer uh, begins to introduce the story, the narrative of uh, the people of God and the presence of God with his people is forcing you to ask the question, where is God? Where, Where is he in all of this? There is a series of events we're about to skim over that are all going to lead us to the question, where is God? And that question is going to lead us to the two other answers, who is God and what is God like? Now the first thing you've got to figure out uh, as we get going, because we've got to get this party started, is that this is part of a continuing story. Here's what I mean. Exodus chapter 1 begins in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already... In Egypt. Now, the thing that's telling about this passage is probably is actually what's not there. You see that little thing I tucked away up in the corner uh, in brackets, it's the word and. Now the thing that, that the reason that's important for us is to understand that like Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers in the original language, they all start with the word and. Uh, Because what they're actually doing is they're not uh, self-contained units. They are all part of the first five books of the Bible, which we would typically call the Pentateuch. And what they have for us is they have a continuing story. It's the continuing story of how God is going to bring about rescue, how he's going to bring about redemption, which we're going to define later in this series, and how he's going to begin to restore the world through a people that would bear his name. So we're going to bear his name if we're going to be about what he's about then we have to understand who he is And we have to understand that we find it in a continuing story. So uh, it's helpful for us to have a map like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's helpful for us to have chapters and verses. But those were not in the original language. Those are simply kind of things for us to help find things within Scripture. Okay? And so that word and helps us to see that this is a continuing story. And this is a long story. This is... One of those stories that it's kind of like a saga, you know. It's like a, it's an epic trilogy, or uh, more than that, you know. I mean, this is a long, long story. And so, Exodus chapter one, actually, if you look back in Genesis forty-six verse eight, it's actually a, um, a an almost an exact wording of Exodus. I mean, excuse me, Genesis forty-six eight, uh, where it recounts the names of uh, the tribes of Jacob that have now resided in. Uh, in Egypt, and then told that story. But here's the thing, is now we're getting uh, to a point where the chapter is turning. So we've been reintroduced to the setting of what happened. If you want that, go read uh, Genesis this afternoon or this week. But when we get to Exodus 1, down into verse 6 and 7, this gives us our first truth about what is this God like? He is working in the waiting. Here's what I mean. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. So here's what you have. You have um, Exodus starting with uh, recounting all these people and he just wipes them off the stage. He says, okay, that was then. Here's the next chapter. Here's what's happening in the story next. Now, what's really cool about this um, is the way that this story is told, it's actually told in a little bit different way than what we would typically do in Western um, storytelling. Uh, There's a book, uh, and my mind just went blank. I had all this in my notes, and I just forgot. I'll I'll tell you about it. I'll post about it this week or something like that. Uh, But the author points this out. and You'll see this if you study uh, uh, the Old Testament or even the New Testament, that in ancient literature, they wrote... uh, uh, their narratives uh, in a little bit different manner. Now, if you're watching a good movie in 2021, you're probably going to notice that the climax is near the end uh, of the movie or the story. It kind of builds to that point and there's, it resolves and all that kind of stuff. Well, in ancient literature, it wasn't always that way. As a matter of fact, one of the preferred ways to do it was kind of in a ring structure. It was kind of like a sandwich, if you will, where uh, it is typically called a chiasm. Some of y'all have probably heard of that. And that means that the climax of the story is in the middle. So what that tells us is is if you read the story of God's people, the climax is not in the individual stories themselves, and it's not at the very end of the story. It actually, if you'll follow the train of thought, you, and it's, if you do that with Pentateuch, you're going to see that what's at the center of the story is Mount Sinai where God meets with His people, right? And makes them his people. And you'll see uh, ascending and descending parallel structures, the parallel stories as you go. One will mirror the other. With that as the top, it'll go bounce all the way back down, all the way up, all the way down. They mirror each other. So here's the thing with that. What we understand for here is that this story in this long arc, with going toward this climax, has involved a lot of waiting. How far? Well, a couple of generations. Matter of fact, this story, this covenantal story, remember, it actually all started with a promise way back in Genesis chapter 15. Here's how it started with a guy named Abram. He took him outside and said, God took Abram outside, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Uh, it started with uh, Abram, look up at the stars. Can you count all those stars? Well, obviously not. Well, you're not going to be able to count your descendants. This is where you're starting. This is where we're going. It's going to take some time. But here's the thing about God. God was intellectually honest with what the weight was going to look like. As a matter of fact, look at this honesty, this transparency with God on down in verse 13 through 15. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age In the fourth generation, descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. You will go to your ancestors in peace. What does that say? That says you're going to die. Here's part of the story. Here's part of the way. This is going to take so long, it's not even going to be finished when you're finished. This is telling us who God is, that God is the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the infinite God. He was here long before you got here. He's going to be here long after you're gone. And so for us that are so addicted to fast pace, I mean, uh, you're addicted to it, I'm addicted to it. We want instantaneous responses. I mean, it, it's to the point too, like, I mean, if somebody sends you a text and you don't respond like immediately, they're like, man, they're being shady, you know? Why are they not, why are they not responding to me? You know, it's been like 10 minutes and they don't have their red receipts on. So I don't know if they read it or, or, or not, you know? Uh, emails, like, well, I emailed them yesterday and I haven't gotten a response about it. Anybody remember back when there was like this piece of paper and you'd fold it up and you'd like lick the thing and put a stamp on it and you'd send it off into the void? And some mysterious person would pick it up and hand it off to another mysterious person and to another mysterious person and it would find its way into a mysterious box. And then it would uh, would be returned and you didn't know how long it was going to take. And so you'd send it off and say, well, maybe in a month or so we'll know what happened with that. We've become so addicted to fast-paced, instantaneous response. And I'm probably the world's worst because I want to see results in my own life. I mean, how long is this going to take? I mean, I want to get things done. I want to see things change. I want to move forward with things. But here's the thing. The economy, the timeline of God, for Him, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. God is committed. He is so committed to His plan of rescue, restoration, and redemption that he knows and he's honest. This is going to take some time. I'm working through what God, I mean, excuse me, what mankind, what men and women have done or what the failures they have. And I'm going to work through through my infinite intelligence. I'm going to bring it to pass. I'm going to bring rescue. I'm going to bring redemption. I'm going to bring restoration. And so... Here's the wait. It takes a long time. So far, I'm going to kind of give you one more little snapshot. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, the Lord said to him, Know for certain that years, for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in the country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation if they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possession. So God honest. You're going to die. And all these people, all the stars, all these folks... They're all going to be enslaved. This is a difficult story. As you move the story forward, this has taken multiple generations, right? I mean, we're talking 200 years, 400 years. And then ultimately, the the thing pushes into fast forward when you get to Genesis chapter 46, verses 2 and 4. And then Abraham's son... Uh, Jacob comes on the scene. He's called Israel at this point. God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. He replied, I'm God, the God of your father. That's Abram. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. So you've got Abraham, I said uh, that, was his, that was his grandpa was Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And so we've got three generations. This is how God works. If, if you are impressing or I'm impressing on God my timeline, then we're always in the chess game going to lose with God. Because God is committed to work out an infinite set of realities to bring about His good and perfect will for the goodness of His creation and for His glory. And this is the God that's being revealed even in the small little things in Exodus. And so if you're in waiting right now, if you're in the waiting room, uh, we make waiting rooms now so comfortable, at least we try to, right? I I mean, uh, if you go to the dentist's office, the doctor's office, I mean, they're all competing with one another because they're all saying who can get the best game console in the waiting room. I get it. you know. TV, you know, you're laying there, and you get. I mean, I, I want all this stuff when I'm getting my teeth worked on, so don't take it away. I get it, but here's the thing: is we expect our waiting to cater to our comfort, but there is nothing in the story of God where God actually insinuates, "I'm going to make your your waiting comfortable." It took a long time; it was not always pleasant, and this is a realistic view. Of God. And, and the reason I state that is because some of us have been told, well, if, if I just try to do the right thing, God's going to honor that and God's gonna, everything's going to go great and it's going to be comfortable. That's not what God promised. We, we all live in the same world. Uh, it says that rain falls on the just and the unjust. Uh, there, there is sickness, there is death, there is difficulty for all of us because of human sin. But God is committed to the infinite choices good and bad, of humankind to bring about his good, perfect end. So God's not causing it, but God is trying to redeem it and restore it. Here's the other thing you got to know, though. He doesn't just uh, work in the waiting. He's also working in the small. You, you saw that it started with 70, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. <coughs> the way that the, the story is told is it starts, again, with Abram. Uh, it begins to grow over a four hundred year period of time, and as that seed is planted and as uh, the seed produces more seed, then what begins to happen is simply this is what was small becomes large. It begins to impact things. Uh, it begins to change things. Uh, but I feel like there's a distaste oftentimes today for things that are small. I had that, you know. Uh, we want big houses, we want big cars, people want big churches. Uh, it's all about something that's large. right? We want, we want to, we, that's how we know God's working. How do we know God's working? Well, is there a lot of money there? Yeah. Is there a big crowd there? Well, that's how we know. Well, that's not the way that God defines whether or not He's working or not. The thing is that God works in the small, so we can celebrate small. We don't have to be afraid when things are not as big as what we think they should be. We can honor the fact that what God is doing is He is planting seeds for something that can grow that will bring rescue, redemption, and restoration because that's what He's committed to. But we've got to wash our minds to think that, well, if the crowd's not big and the things are not big and we don't have all the things, then God's not moving. That could actually be the opposite. It could actually be the opposite. That's not the way that God's way works. God grows things large but he honors things that are small. But that's the other, the other thing that it is, that when he grows small things through the waiting, it also means that he's working through opposition. Here's the way, primary way the opposition uh, uh, surfaces in Exodus chapter 1. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more, let's go on to the next slide, numerous and if war breaks out we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country so they're, they're growing so much that it begins to threaten this new king and we're not even told who he is at this point point. Uh, and, and he's threatened so much that they're saying hey we got to do something because if they keep getting bigger they're going to be they're going to be more of them than there is of us and so what do you do with that well what he chose to do happens in verse 11. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses, uh, store cities for Pharaoh. But he didn't stop there. As they kept on going, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the plan didn't work it actually accomplished the opposite of what it was designed to accomplish. Why? Because God's continuing to work. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Um, if, you were an, excuse me, if you were an Israelite in this time, do you think you'd be asking the question, where is God? I mean, I think you would. I mean, what did we do? We came down here. Uh, we were, God, you said, come down to Egypt. We're down in Egypt. And I know you said there's, we're going to be in slavery, but what, I mean, why is that? You know, they're finding themselves down here. They're asking these deep questions, and God is about to reveal who He really is. How is He doing that? To prove that He's actually working in the face of oppression. Did God will that Pharaoh would actually ruthlessly oppress them? I don't think so. I think what happened was the natural series of events, God's continuing to work in His power and His sovereignty. He's not the one that uh, we hang the blame on for what happened. He's the one that's going to work through the infinite number of choices, one of those being an earthly power that thought He was ultimately in control. There was no more powerful person in the ancient world at this time than the king of Egypt. It was the nation that was on the pinnacle. Uh, It wasn't on the come up, it was there. I mean, it, it had arrived. This was a nation of power. And if you study history, you'll kind of see how all these dynamics play out within their culture. And so the king, with impunity, had power to do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. And in many ways, you'll see this if you, uh, if you study uh, Egyptian history and you see the pyramids and the tombs. Uh, they treated themselves... And we viewed as gods themselves. And if you view yourself as a god, that means that you can make the decisions. And you can decide who lives and who dies and who comes and who goes. And in the midst of this earthly power, God is still working through the oppression. It goes against what we typically think. Well, if people are working against me, if I'm swimming against the current, then apparently God's not on our side not always the case that's not the way that this god operates it's not the way it works what you see on on the surface with your with your american definitions of what success what god looks like underneath when you impress your western mindset on him god says i have none of that that's not who i am and so he reveals who he is and he was revealing himself to them too because just like they we have questions they had questions you see, the king of Egypt, he was trying all these different plans. That one didn't work. As a matter of fact, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives uh, named Shipra and Pua, two midwives, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby's a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. So the first plan didn't work, so we'll go to plan B. What's the next plan? Well, we're going to eradicate all the baby boys in this generation. That should do it. Uh, They're defenseless. They can't defend themselves. So what am I going to do? I'm king. I'm going to go to uh, Shippor and Pua, the midwives. Now, who are midwives in this season? I mean, in this uh, culture? Well, we all know in a patriarchal culture that the women were not at the same social status and value status as the men, but on that status... Midwives were on the lower end of the status themselves. So now, why was that? It's because they couldn't bear children. If you were a, a midwife, then that typically meant that you were not able to bear children. And so, you were the one responsible for bearing the other children. Now, kind of by definition, within cultural expectations, that would mean you, you're somewhat expendable. You're kind of a nobody, really. And in this story, what we see is in the middle of this story, he goes to these... Uh, these midwives, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all these boys out. Now, this is the height of oppression. This is the height, the pinnacle of evil. We're now to the point where we're killing infants. This is despicable. This is evil. This is when God begins to enter in. What is God going to do? God, where are you? What are you going to do? Well, then inside this story, what God does is He proves to us that in the midst of that oppression, what He also chooses to do is He works through the weak and the powerless. Here's what the midwives did. They feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. And they let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Now interestingly, if you if you follow the story, this is kind of tucked away in there, we're not told who the king is, but whose names have we been told? Shippur and Pua. The writer names the women that are the heroes of the story. Matter of fact, in chapters 1 and 2, the only heroes in the story are women. Uh, it's interesting how God always chooses to use, He's going to use the midwives, He's going to use uh, the mother. Uh, of Moses. He's going to use Moses' sister. He's going to use a Gentile woman, Pharaoh's daughter. He's going to grow up in the house and everything. God is continuing to use those that are off the grid, those that would be considered weak and powerless by earthly standards. God is going to elevate them and use them in the story. These are shadows of the way that God wants to use and restore His kingdom, and He uses the outsiders. God's always doing this. As a matter of fact, if you read Genesis, just go through it and try to read how many times God uses somebody from the outside, how somebody on a lower status, God is always using those. It's much like when Jesus shows up on the scene. Uh, How does Jesus show up on the scene? He shows up as a baby. He shows up off the grid. He comes to, and as Isaiah 53 says, there's nothing that would attract us to him from an earthly standpoint. God always chooses to work through the outside, the lowly, the weak, the oppressed. And that's why we as a church, why when we we model God-likeness, then that means that we honor God the weak and the oppressed. That's why, we're, we don't, that's why we use the word justice. It's because justice means that we do, uh, we elevate and we help those to balance what God has called us to be as the kingdom of God. And so he's working now through the weak. He's working through the powerless. And here's the thing. Some of you today, you feel weak and you feel powerless. You feel small. You feel like you're waiting. These are exactly the types of places that God works in. Matter of fact, if we're honest about it, what we would say is that's where we all are. Matter of fact, Scripture says that, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul himself said that uh, I'm going to celebrate my weakness now because I know that's where you're strong, God. The best way for us to actually embrace the power of God is actually embrace our own weakness. God continues to work that way. He works that way today. So what I love, though, is I love the bravado, the fowler the of these women, because watch how they answer. This is hilarious. This is their answer when they get asked this question by uh, Pharaoh. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Nobody thought that was funny. I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, I just have this image of like, what are we going to say? I don't know. Just tell them they're vigorous, you know? They're really vigorous. And so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. He gave them children. Um, And so God moves in spite of obstacles, in spite of oppression, in spite of waiting. God moves through the weak and the powerless. So, Raising the stakes, uh, Pharaoh raises the stakes. We're going to finish this up pretty quick. This is how the story plays out. Pharaoh gave the order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now think about this for a second. Um, okay, so uh, it, the, the closest thing I can think of, and it actually literally is the closest thing you can think of to the Nile, is the Mississippi River, right? Because there's you know, Amazon, Nile, Mississippi, three largest rivers in the world. I would dare to say most, if not all of us, have seen the Mississippi River. And this has become very real in the last month, because uh, there was a crack in the bridge. Right? How many of y'all thought about this weekend, like, oh no, I just drove across that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Matter of fact, I think that a lot when I drive across there, I was like, oh, surely they check this thing out. Surely they do. Apparently not. You know? Whatever. but it makes you think, right? Because you're like, oh, man, I got, you know, I've got kind of this fear of heights. I've got this fear of this river. It's huge. It's massive. You know? I mean, it's scary. There's a little bit of fear when you come to that because you see how small you are, how large that is. Well, in the ancient world, it was much like that. It wasn't just the fact that it was big and the, and the bridge was cracked. It was actually worshipped uh, as a god. Uh, why? Because their livelihood came from it. Uh, this, is where they, this is where they got their life. This is why Egypt, actually one of the re- main reasons why it rose to power was because of the Nile River. And how did they often do that? They would actually sacrifice babies into the Nile, um, child sacrifice, uh, to actually honor the gods of the Nile in order to appease them so that they could earn the favor and hopefully uh, they would get sustenance from the river so a couple things are going on, obviously he's trying to eradicate any threat, but he's also and simultaneously throwing these babies into the Nile River, which is one of their sources of worship, right? And so as we throw them in, then that gives us kind of this picture. Now take that picture for a second, and if you've got to imagine the Mississippi River Take that and then think about this next thing because this is the, one of the last ways that the, the Lord we see the Lord working in here. This is what happens next. He's also he's working through the faith of others in your life and in this story. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that she was a, he was a fine child, a sort of good child, she hid him for three months. Now, uh, we were joking at the 9 o'clock because the Teresa's over here had their baby and and she was crying. And and so we were like, uh, oh, he was crying. And so we were like, oh, I I use them as a living illustration because I was like, you can't hide that, right? Uh, When babies are crying, you can't hide that. How do you hide that for three months? I don't quite know how that happened. But this after three months is like, well we can't hide anymore. So what do we do? Here's what happens next uh, in verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer... She got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pits, and then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now, she's got kind of a safe spot for it, but can you imagine? I mean, you're, it's the Nile River, right? I mean, imagine the Mississippi River. You're going to try to tuck away this baby in a basket, uh, which is actually the same uh, word that they use for ark, uh, Noah and ark. He's got, a little, he's got a little baby ark. They put him in the reeds. Uh, right there in the thing, and you're saying, well, these reeds should hold him. It's like what some of y'all did, like back in the old days when this was the seatbelt. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) It's like, oh, this should hold him. This will be fine. Oh, kids can ride everywhere, you know, whatever. Uh, There's a lot of faith that it takes to do this. This is a moment where, in this moment, much like the midwives, the mother has to say, what are we going to do? Well, the only thing I know to do is to build an ark and to trust God. And we're going to place the ark, we're going to put it at the bank, and hopefully the reeds will hold it. And they knew, I would think that they knew, this is where Pharaoh's daughter would come to bathe. And so hopefully there's a plan concocted in their mind that hopefully goes well, but plans don't always go, uh, things don't always go according to plan. But this is the way it happened here. Apparently God directed the... The kind of the encounter with the baby uh, there on the Nile. Go on to the next verse. She opened it, saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. It moves on to say, uh, as we finish the story up, uh, as a sister was standing at the river bank, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. I think those got flipped somehow in there. But basically, you get the picture. You probably know the story, right? And when you get to verse 7, the sister pulls them out. The whole thing happens where the mom uh, ends up getting paid to raise Moses. And so when you get to verse uh, 10, by the time you get to verse 10, it actually says, The child grew over. She took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water, which is what Moses means. So all these things, right? All these things. God is continually working through all these infinite scenarios. But there's one final one that I want to close with real quick. Because I think for us, most of those things are kind of personally detached. Like waiting, it seems like all you can do is wait. Small, you can't really make things big when they're small. You really can't control outward oppression. You can only control how you respond to it, you know, things like that. Uh, You can have moments of faith for sure, but you don't know sometimes whether or not you're showing faith or you're asking questions and things like that. But there's something that we all deal with that's a really personal one, and it's the last thing I want to share with you today because what this is going to reveal is that even in the midst of oppression, waiting, smallness, all those things, one of the biggest ways you're going to see God work is He's working through our failure, our failure. Watch what happens with Moses. The way the story's told is kind of building to this climax. You think, okay, God is going to do this miraculous thing, but watch as Moses grows up. Chapter 2, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. He was breaking his heart. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. That's Moses. He's looking around. And he killed the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. One moment of rage. In an interesting dynamic, Moses was actually attempting to do, I think, what his calling was. He was actually trying to do God's will, but not God's way. He was trying to deliver. He was burdened. He was broken for the oppression and the slavery that he saw. But rather than follow God's plan, what did he do? He reached out and took matters into his own hands, and he killed an Egyptian. Now, being at his place in society and in government, you would think he could do this again with impunity. But as we see, this is a choice that he's making. Is he an Egyptian? Is he side with the Egyptians? Or is he siding with the Jews, the Israelites, in this situation? Well, the whole thing begins to spiral out of control. The hope, the instrument of hope, Moses. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting again. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Chances are, we're all human in here. There's something in your life that you think that no one's seen, but if it got out, it would crush you. If somebody saw that act, if somebody knew what you thought or heard what you said, you'd probably be really embarrassed and you'd probably end up running away. You probably wouldn't be sitting in comfortable setting that you're sitting in right now. And the reason I share that with you is Moses, that was his story. One moment seemed to derail this complete epic saga. I mean, he was the chosen one, if you will, to bring about restoration for the people of Israel. But because of one moment, one failure? What's going to happen in the story? And if you read this as a story, it makes perfect sense. And it conflicts with what most of us believe about church, about God, and about what this whole story is about. Last week, last week we—I'll finish with this. Last week, we, uh, me and the kids and Veronica, we went to uh, Bentonville. Went to Crystal Bridges uh, up in Bentonville. Um, You haven't gone. You should go. It's beautiful. Walking trails. Everything is pristine, beautiful. And inside, um, (coughs) excuse me, you can get tickets and go to the art uh, gallery that's there, art museum that's there, and amazing works of art, uh, different uh, periods uh, of history. You can go through there. And as we're sitting or like I said, we were walking through there. I mean, you just sit and you'd see these people stare and they would read about it and then move to the next one. And it, it took a couple hours, you know. You'd read about it and look at all the detail in the painting and go to the next one and go down the hall and go to the next one. And some of us mistakenly think that that's what church is. It, it's crystal bridges. We're going to come in and we're just going to look at all the beautiful artwork. We're all going to look at how everybody's got it all together. And this is a place where all the paintings get hung. I mean, we've got the beautiful family over here. We've got the single girl that always gets it right. We've got the senior adult that always says everything sweetly, you know, all the stuff. We think that's what God is up to. But what it is, I think the story tells us, is that God, the reason the story's told is because God embraces our failure, because we are not crystal bridges. We are, we are not an art museum. We are a hospital. Probably more accurately, we're a morgue. We're a group of dead people that God has come and brought back to life. And I say that because what I want you to leave with today is simply this, is the way that he ended his story in chapter 2, verse 15. It leaves it at this cliffhanger. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses. Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he went to live in Midian, And he sat down by a well. Now, if you can imagine the picture, this is like the end of that episode to get you to watch the next episode. What's gonna happen? What we thought was gonna happen didn't happen because of the failure of the person that was we were putting all our hope in. And now what are we gonna do? What's God gonna do? Where is God? Who is God? What is God like? Well, it's gonna take the rest of the story to tell us who he is. And I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll come back and I hope that you'll read through Exodus this summer with us so we can learn who this God is. And I think by, in turn, what we'll do is we'll learn a little bit more about ourselves too. And we'll learn about his grace of how he rescues and how he redeems and how he restores. And so if you fail today, you're facing an obstacle, you feel a small, know this, that God is at work. Let me pray over us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much today for the fact that you are at work in spite of us, in spite of our failures, God, in spite of our obstacles. You are infinitely intelligent and you can treat every possibility as if it's a certainty and you can work around all of our failure. And so God, today, through your authority, through your power, I pray, God, that you would embolden us to be humble Lord, you'd help us to be humble in the sense of knowing our need for you. Lord, that you would shape our view of one another. You'd shape our view of the world around us so that we can serve them and be who you create us to be, a people in your presence. Lord, as you've overcome through the person of Jesus, who ultimately is where this story is going to point us to, Lord, the one that came out of the waters for us, the one that delivered us from death, Lord, we look to you, Lord Jesus, to come in and to bring life into our bodies, to strengthen us, God, for what you want to shape us into, your people, called by your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.